Okay, tomorrow's the big day. 9 a.m. Hey, you guys are back. Back from camp. All right. What time do the teens get back today? Anyone know? 10 p.m.? I won't be welcoming them back then. So, I came last Sunday to see them off, so that's good enough. Okay. Well, we'll be praying for them. That's a long day, so... Hopefully they won't get stuck at a truck stop for 12 hours. So was that 12 hours? Benjamin was on the Operation Barnabas bus headed to the airport to come home last week or two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. The bus broke down and they got stranded at a truck stop in Ohio for 12 hours. Then they had to go to Pennsylvania, right, to get something and then come back to Ohio or or something. So he missed his flight. And then they wanted to charge you six hundred dollars for a new flight, but God intervened through a red-headed Lebanese man named uh, Habib, and so it ended up costing nothing. So, yeah, so hopefully they won't have so much trouble today. That kind of fits with good news, right? Uh, good news didn't cost you $600. Uh, when was the last time you heard good news? I mean, really good news. Anybody? I won't ask you to share what it is, but anybody hear any really good news like recently? All right. I mean, oh, not very many people. Wow. How many? Just a couple? Okay. Wow, good news. All right. Well, we heard some good news. Our son, Nathan, he was he had a great job, but he was working on contract uh, at a place called Zimmer Orthopedic. Uh, and their con- his contract was up. And they said, sorry, we're having a hiring freeze. We don't have anything for you. So he started scrambling and interviewing, and he was going to move home with us. And we were excited about that. And... So, but anyway, long story short, they didn't want him to leave. They said, what do you mean you're leaving? He said, well, you told me I don't have a job. I got to get out of here. And they said, no, 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 wait. Then they came and said, we have a job for you, a permanent job. So they hired him permanently there in Warsaw at Zimmer Orthopedics. So that was good news. And Nate was really thankful to the Lord. And, uh, but what do you usually do with good news when you get really good news? Maybe you, uh, you know, I know Robert Kimsey, I'm going to embarrass him. You know, uh, you had that problem in your mouth and they're like, dude, this could be really serious. You need to go get that tested. So he goes and gets it tested. Then you can. Oh, no, you have to wait till we get the results. But this doesn't look very good. So then he gets the report back. Right. And they said, it's a canker sore. <laughs> right. And have you ever been thankful for a canker sore? That was probably the first time you say seriously, you say, thank you, Lord. It was just a canker sore. I mean, they're talking cancer. I mean, it could have been anything. So or maybe you get some unexpected money. Anyone ever get unexpected money? You know, a a check shows up or, you know, you got a deadbeat relative that finally pays you back, you know, and you're not you're not expecting it. Right. And what do we do usually when we get really good news? Yeah, share it. All right, we share it. You can't keep it to yourself. You like to tell people uh, about your good news. I mean, I've been telling everybody about Nate. A lot of you have been praying for him. So uh, I like to share good news. Did you know that the word gospel in the New Testament means literally a good message? Do we have some slides today? Are they not? uh, Flip it, flip it, flip it, flip it. There you go. 
The word gospel means a good message or good news. When when the gospels tell us that Jesus began to preach and teach the gospel throughout the whole area, he was beginning to preach good news or a good message, something he was not supposed to keep to himself. Or we go to Romans chapter one and we say we read this morning already. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of the good message. And it's such good news that we shouldn't be keeping it to ourselves. In fact, the gospel is such good news that we should be compelled to share it with anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. And if we're not excited, if we're not sharing the gospel, then to us, it's not good news because you don't keep good news to yourself. So if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not sharing the message that Jesus died for sinners, then to you, it's not really good news. We're not sharing it. Now, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Some people celebrated it last May. I wanted to do that, but I didn't get to it. Uh, Some will celebrate it on Reformation Day. What day of the year is Reformation Day? It's also known by another name. Oh, very good. I thought all I heard was crickets for a couple of seconds. Sure, sure. Halloween or All Hallows Eve, which is when? October 31st. Did you know that that's actually Reformation Day? That's the day of the year that Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church to the castle door in the German city of Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. But some people celebrated May because some other things happened at that time. So there was a time I wanted us to honor the Protestant Reformation to think about what it means for us, the impact of it. And what exactly happened? We can't cover everything because it's a huge event. But I want us to think about some things. There was a time in world history when the good news of the gospel was almost completely silent. We call that the Middle Ages. This information is on your outlines. Uh, If you don't have an outline, then you may be a little lost. You may be in the Dark Ages at this moment. So... I don't know if there's any extra outlines out there, uh, if these guys can bring them in. So the Middle Ages lasted a thousand years from the 5th century to the 15th century. In other words, from the year 400 into the 1400s. We also call that time period medieval times. It's not just a restaurant on Beach Boulevard in Buena Park. It's a real thing. We also call that time the Dark Ages. Mainly because we don't have a lot of information about that time. But also, think about this time. There were millions of people who were held captive in fear of eternal torment by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And think about this, that most people were illiterate. Most people did not know how to read. And it was illegal to own a copy of Scripture. Because if you were just an average Joe, you were not qualified to read or handle the scriptures. Only your priest could do it for you. 
And the Bible was not even written in your own language. It was written in Latin, which nobody but the clergy understood. And so millions were at the mercy of a very corrupt Roman Catholic church. One of the main teachings of the church at that time was in order to secure your salvation in heaven, you needed to pay what was called an indulgence. You needed to pay. Maybe we should start that around here and increase our bank account. If you want to be safe in your salvation, all you have to do is make a little financial donation. It is sinister, even though I'm joking about it. It was sinister. People were terrified. And think of fact, think about if you were poor. In fact, a very popular saying during this period of history was this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. People believed that their sins could be forgiven if they would pay money. They believed that they could rescue loved ones who had already died from a place which, by the way, the Bible does not teach. There is no such place as purgatory. When you die, there is no waiting place. When you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. There's only two. But they were taught that if they paid the right price, they could get their loved ones out of purgatory. To disobey the Pope or his edicts would result in death. Because during this time, the Pope's word was higher than even the authority of the scriptures. But then... One of my favorite words we see in the Bible all the time is but, B-U-T, but, because things change. I'm being careful of my words because it could sound funny, maybe inappropriate, but things change when you see a but. It's true. That's what it's there for. It's to get our attention. Say, this is how it is, but this is the new way that it is. But into this darkness, God sends one small, single, shining light to rescue people. That light was a lowly German monk by the name Martin Luther. Luther was deeply troubled within his soul because he began to seriously read the Bible. And he noticed that the doctrine and practices of the Roman Catholic Church didn't align with Scripture. And it produced a deep conflict within his conscience. And here was the conflict. And it's ironic and tragic that the same conflict exists today in the church. And it never really even has waned. And here is the issue in Luther's mind. It's still the issue today. Where does ultimate authority lie? Does ultimate authority over the Christian lie in Scripture? Or does it lie in a person of high office, such as the Pope or someone else? You have to remember what their life was like at this time. So these were radical thoughts. Martin Luther was a college professor in, in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, it looks like Wittenberg, but you know the Germans, the W is a V sound. We say Volkswagen, but how do the Germans say it? Volkswagen. They don't know what they're doing. Okay. He began to preach against the practice of indulgences for salvation. And instead, he preached repentance from sin that should come from the heart as all that God required for salvation. So he became very popular, right, among the Catholic Church. Wrong. 
1515, Pope Leo X issued a call for an indulgence to finance St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He announced that any sin, including adultery and theft, would be forgiven if one would simply drop coins in the coffer. And Pope Leo ordered that for eight years, all other indulgence preaching was to stop. And he gave strict instructions to the priests and the clergy on how to preach this indulgence so that he could collect his money. But by October 31st, 1517, two years later, Martin Luther could take it no longer. And he nailed his 95 complaints on that castle door, which was a common practice at the time. If you had a public statement you wanted to make, you nailed it to the door of the government office. And he didn't realize it, but he lit a fire of good news that spread rapidly across Europe and England, which then led to the Anabaptist movement, which was led by Alexander Mack, which eventually he and his folks came to the United States and settled in a place called Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And they formed the first American Brethren Congregation on December 25th, 1723. And that's why we're here today. They were our ancestors, church speaking. And all this sprung from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ during a time period we call the Protestant Reformation. 1517 to 1648. Let's back up just a little bit and see how all this happened. Let's also, as we go through this, remember that this was not something that was organized. There wasn't a person or a board calling for these things to happen. This was God and his sovereignty, God and his providence orchestrating the affairs of men, bringing them to salvation. And then men and women and children by the untold thousands. But all beginning with just single people. Now, for our Dutch friends, you'll like this. There was a man from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and his name was Erasmus. He had a long name, but it was too hard to pronounce. So we're just going with Erasmus. It was an important southern port city. In the Netherlands. And he lived 1466 to 1536. Now he was the greatest scholar of his time. And in 1516 he did something amazing and shocking and very upsetting to the Roman Catholic Church. And it was quite by God's providence, not by human will. What did he do? He created or translated, he created his own His own Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. What does that mean? Well, the New Testament is written in Greek and he translates it into Latin. And you think, well, that doesn't sound so good. People didn't even speak Latin. But here's why this is so important. This is why this is such a big deal. It's a big deal because the Roman Catholic Church for centuries had strictly required that the whole world use its Latin translation of the New Testament. They called it the Vulgate. V-U-L-G-A-T-E. But this story gets even better. Because Rome's Latin translation was actually not very good. 
Not only were people kept in darkness, the clergy that could read Latin and had the Roman Catholic Latin Bible called the Vulgate, the translation wasn't real good. It wasn't accurate. And so they were mistaught and in turn would misteach the people. Now, the Latin Vulgate, when it was written in 405 A.D. by a man named Jerome, a godly man who lived in Jerusalem, it was okay. But over the centuries, the Catholic Church and those that translated it in the Catholic Church allowed heirs to creep in so that it would serve their own purposes. So you see, Erasmus created a new translation of the New Testament right from the original Greek into Latin. He didn't use the Roman church's Latin copy. For instance, this is just one little example. For instance, Matthew 4.17. In the Roman Latin Bible, Matthew 4.17 was worded this way. Listen closely. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do penance. But Erasmus, his new translation in the New Testament, which he did right from the Greek, not using the Roman Catholic version. Matthew 417 in his Bible said this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, be penitent, not do penance. Be penitent or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Erasmus's translation of Matthew 4:17 was teaching that a sacramental act of penance, doing some good deed or some act was not really the biblical teaching of Jesus about the kingdom. Erasmus's Bible was teaching people accurately that the way into Jesus' kingdom was to repent from the heart, to be repentant. Not do some act of penance. But there's a huge, huge problem. It's a popular word today. Erasmus was disagreeing with Rome. And he didn't do it on purpose. In fact, you know, he dedicated his new translation of the New Testament to the Pope. He wasn't trying to provoke Rome. He didn't even know he was going to cause a problem. He was just translating the Bible accurately. And people who got a hold of his translation began to ask themselves, they began to think, if Rome is wrong on these things, what else is Rome wrong about? And kaboom. That's not Greek or Hebrew, that's English. Kaboom. Erasmus's New Testament was a ticking time bomb. Well, over in Germany, you travel from Rotterdam to Germany. How far is that? A few hours? I don't know. It's been a long time since you've been there, huh? Over in Germany, there was a Catholic monk who was searching his soul for answers to the problems he saw in his own church. His name was Martin Luther. Now, stand amazed at the providence of God. Why was Martin Luther's soul disturbed within him before he came to salvation? 
because he was reading someone's translation of the New Testament. Whose translation do you think he was reading? He was reading Erasmus's new translation of the New Testament because he was troubled. So he gathered all the resources he could find to get to the truth. I think we could bust out in that song from the music man. Oh, we got trouble. Because, oh, there's trouble brewing. Luther was starting to see a disconnect between the New Testament and the Roman church. He asked himself, is Rome really above scripture? Martin Luther began thinking about the issue of proper authority. Where does ultimate authority for the Christian reside? In Holy Scripture, in the Pope, in the church, in edicts and tradition. So as Luther studied Erasmus' New Testament, he came to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And he spent long hours struggling to understand Paul's gospel of justification and righteousness of God. Here's Luther's problem. Luther's problem was that he thought he already understood what it meant to be saved. He thought he already understood what justification meant and righteousness meant. But he was starting to realize that his Roman Catholic understanding of salvation and justification was not quite actually what the Bible was teaching. So he had this crisis of understanding. Luther kept coming back again and again to Romans 5.5. And you don't need to turn there. I put the reference on your outline. But these words at Romans 5, 5 that say the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by God or by the Holy Spirit. So Luther had always understood this to mean that justification is when God makes me just in myself. He was thinking that God pours his love into me. And I earn God's favor because I take the love that he pours into me and I become more and more just in his sight by the good deeds that I do because of the love that he poured into me. So Martin Luther understood that justification or salvation meant I take what God gives me and I run with it. And I do as much good and as much just as I can until I'm just before God. But he was starting to see that justification was something quite different. And here is his great question. After he started studying the Bible for himself. Am I just enough to be worthy of God's salvation? How much just is enough to appease the wrath of God for my sin? In other words... He was saying, if I have to be good to gain salvation, how good do I have to be? Because God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is angry and directs his wrath towards sin. So how good do I have to be before I'm safe? Because he realized that he was a sinner. A sinner standing before an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards would say. So he was struggling. So he's coming out of this and he begins to grasp the true definition 
of what justification means. Justification is taught in the Bible, and Luther came to understand this, means an instantaneous legal act of God. And I misspelled the word divine on your outlines. It should be D-I, not D-E. An instantaneous legal act of God, a divine declaration of God's own independent free will choice by his mercy. Whereby he declares the sinner righteous because of Christ's death. Circle, highlight, underline Christ. Christ's sin-covering, wrath-removing blood, in which he no longer counts our sins against us because God has clothed us in Christ's righteousness. It's beginning to dawn on Luther that he cannot earn his salvation. That it must be received as a free gift from God. Because he knew that he could never be good enough to receive God's stamp of approval. Now, this is earth shattering. You're talking about over a thousand years of being told you can work your way to heaven. Martin Luther then enters into the kingdom of God as a true believer. And do you know how that happens? By reading one verse of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, is the verse that saved Martin Luther's soul. But we can look at verse 16 as well. Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news or good message. For it is the power of God. That's the other thing that's different. You go for the dark ages when people are terrified by the wrath of God, living constantly in fear. And here Martin Luther and the other reformers, John Calvin in Switzerland and France. You've got Whitcliffe earlier in England and Tyndale. All these guys realize that it's by God's mercy and love uh, that they can enter into eternal life. And to them it's good news. And they were saying, if this is good news and we believe it is good news and we should be excited and full of joy and sharing this. But it was a dark, depressing time. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning Jews and Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, meaning from beginning to end. Just as it is written, the just man by faith shall live. So Luther understands that God says you cannot save yourself, but you know what? I have a free gift for you. That gift is called Jesus Christ. And if you by faith will accept him as your means of eternal life, you got it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to be anything. You just have to confess that you're a sinner and you need him. This, this was earth shattering. And by the way, this is earth shattering to people today. A lot of people, before they approach God, think that they have to clean themselves up first or, or they have to become good enough. Uh, absolutely not. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Good by nature. Good within themselves. So Romans 1.17 didn't, didn't fit with 
Luther's understanding. And listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, he was a good monk. I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I couldn't believe that God was placated by my good life. Therefore, I raged with a fierce, troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat on Paul at that place of Romans 1.17, ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted from me. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night on Romans 1.17, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, not within myself. Because as it is written, he who through faith is righteous and shall live. Luther says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. He came to call it passive righteousness, meaning it was something that was given to him. He would passively have to receive it as a merciful gift from God. And he says this here. I felt finally I was altogether born again and entered paradise through open gates. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that marvelous? Luther's understanding of God's salvation had radically shifted. And it's because of those seven powerful words. Let's, let's ponder over Romans 117 for a couple moments. These opening verses of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, we see the theme. The theme of his letter is the gospel or the good news. And in verse 3, he tells us that the good news is of Christ. But here's what we want to make sure we understand. The gospel is more than only news about Christ. It is Christ himself who is the good news. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no good news. In fact, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? You shouldn't answer that the gospel is a what, but a who. I love Alva J. McLean's commentary on Romans. It's called the gospel of God's grace. Of course, Alva J. McLean is in heaven now, but he is the founding president of Grace Theological Seminary. He did a lot of writing, but his um, small commentary, it's small on Romans called the gospel of God's grace is tremendous. And this is what he says there about this passage. He says, the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ in his blessed person and in his mighty work to lose. Jesus is to lose the gospel. This is McLean writing in the early 1900s, but it sounds like he's describing today. He says, one of the strangest things in the religious life of the world is that the world would like to have Christianity without Christ. The world would like to get rid of Jesus and at the same time keep the gospel. The world would like to have good news from God without the Son of God. People are not offended by good news from God. They love that. But they hate the name of Jesus. But the two are inseparable. 
He says Christians must stand with the Apostle Paul and proclaim that apart from Jesus Christ, God has no good news for any man. Eliminate Christ and there remains no good news for the world, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation. We're seeing that today, even in the American church, people who call themselves Christians trying to remove Christ from their Christianity because he's offensive. He's too exclusive. Romans 1, 16 and 17 states the gospel, defines the gospel in seven great, powerful words. And it's Jesus Christ, the son of God, who gives meaning and value to these words. Power, God, salvation, righteousness, faith, just life. If we take Christ out of these words, nothing is left but empty words. Listen to what I mean by that. These seven words, power, says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. But what about power? First Corinthians one twenty four tells us that Christ is the power of God. Christ makes the gospel the power of God. Then we see the word God here in Romans. First Timothy 3.16 declares that Christ was God manifested in human flesh. And Colossians 1.15 informs us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So ask yourself this. How much would you know about God if you did not have Christ? You ever do that? Zero. Since we're talking about Luther in Germany, let's use the German word for zero. Null. N-U-L-L. Null. Zero. John chapter 1 tells us that. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who came from the Father in the person of Jesus Christ, has explained him. Without Jesus, you would know nothing about God. He uses the word salvation here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Think back to Luke chapter two. There was an old man named Simeon when Jesus was born and Jesus parents brought the baby Jesus into the temple and Simeon took Jesus in his arms. He looks up to heaven and he praises God and he says it's recorded in Luke two. He says, now I can depart this world in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. He looks at the baby Jesus and calls him salvation. He says the gospel is righteousness in Romans. And this is the center of Paul's powerful seven words. And Paul then tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus became to us righteousness. Romans 1 says a lot about faith, but we see in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. Without Jesus, we would not have any faith. We could not have any faith. He says the just shall live by faith in Romans 117, which he quotes from Habakkuk in the Old Testament. But in Acts chapter 22, verse 14, we see recorded that Jesus is called the just one. And then in Romans chapter five, verse nine, we see declared that in the blood of Christ, God declares us just. We become just or we become righteous in Christ. And then lastly, he says live or uses the word life there in Romans one. 
But without Jesus, there is no life, right? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the point. It's obviously evident that Christ is everything. Christ is everything. When you take Christ out of the gospel, you have nothing left of the gospel. The good news is gone. You've lost the power. You've lost the God who gave the gospel. You've lost the salvation that the gospel brings. We lose the righteousness that the gospel reveals that's given to us. Uh, We lose the faith by which the gospel is applied, the legal declaration that we're declared just before God. If we take Christ out of the gospel, we have lost life itself. You see, we have to be careful that we're not falling in love with just the church. That we're not falling in love with just Christianity. That we're not falling in love with just faith. Or that we're not falling in love with just scripture. But that's central to all of it. Ultimate above all of it. All that testifies to the man, Jesus Christ. He is the one where we place our love and our loyalty and our allegiance and our obedience. He is the one that we share with people. He is the gospel. We can tell people someone died for your sins in your place. You deserve to die for your own sins. But someone came from heaven and took your place so that you could live. Dr. McLean goes on to say, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul does not say here the gospel contains power or that it is powerful or that the gospel has power or even that the gospel exerts power. He doesn't say any of these things. When Paul's writing, what he does say is that the gospel is the power. This is the gospel here in Romans 1 in less than two verses, about 26 words, he says. Just a scrap of paper and a few drops of ink. Not very impressive, someone may say. Nothing to get excited about. And yet those few words contain the most amazing power that is known in the universe today. The power of God in Jesus Christ, which can save men's souls. It was the power of these few words which set Martin Luther's heart aflame and turned Europe and the world upside down for centuries. These very same words had transformed the hearts and lives of Jesus' 11 disciples. They, too, changed the world forever, altering the destiny of untold millions who would come after them, who would embrace the gospel, embrace Jesus Christ. So we ask ourselves, can mere words save souls? You can step outside right now into the street and you can say to the first man you meet, Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And if that man believes it, instantly his sins are blotted out forever. He stands righteous before God and the eternal life of God enters into his soul. And the words that you spoke to him are the power of God. It's interesting, the account, don't turn there. Well, I'm not going to tell you not to turn there. You can turn there if you want. But Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 13 and 14. That account of when an angel was sent to a man named Cornelius... And the angel said, send somebody to the city of Joppa and bring back the apostle Peter. Because Peter will speak words by which you and your whole household can be saved. You see, God said there that words would save him and the words did save him. So the record of the event at Cornelius' house says that as Peter began to speak, the Holy Spirit 
came upon those who were listening and they were saved. Now, now grasp this. Please grasp this. Peter had nothing then that we don't still have today. We have the same words of the same gospel of the same Christ that carries the same power to save the souls of people that the Apostle Peter had, as recorded in the book of Acts. And we tend to forget that. And we tend to not understand or we tend to minimize the gospel message. Folks, that's all we need. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need tricks. We don't need manipulation. We don't need prizes. We don't need giveaways. We don't, we don't need wrangling over arguments and fine points of doctrine. We simply need to tell people that Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you could have eternal life. And then we pray for the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. So Martin Luther now understands justification. He's transformed and he's overwhelmed by this. And he goes out and he begins telling everyone who would listen. He tells them two major things. One, he says, the Bible stands above all, above the Pope, above the church, above tradition. The Bible is numero uno, he says. And secondly, he preaches and he declares everywhere across Europe, justification is a divine declaration. Sinners are saved purely by the grace of God, not anything in themselves. And in 1520, this so-called new religion rocks Europe to its theological core. And millions come into the kingdom of God. Let's go across the English Channel. It's not a long trip. Now they have a tunnel. I think you can go under. No tunnel back then. Things happened a little differently in England. So we went from the Netherlands east to Germany. Now we're going to go back west to England. I don't want that yet. It's on your outlines, but there won't be any slides. So in England, there's a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. He was educated as a lawyer at Oxford, but he enters holy orders of the church But he quickly becomes dissatisfied with the doctrine of the English church, which at the time is Catholic. So he gets his hands on this new translation of the New Testament written by, who do you think? Erasmus. That rascal Erasmus, he's caused a lot of problems. So Bilney comes across 1 Timothy 1.15 and he reads an accurate translation. 1 Timothy 1.15 reads... Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he had been in despair over his sins. But Bilney, Thomas Bilney writes this. He said, when I read this and I understood this, 1 Timothy 1.15, I seemed to feel within myself a marvelous comfort and quietness. Insomuch that even my bruised bones leaped for joy. And after this moment, the scriptures came to be more pleasant to me than even honey on the honeycomb. When I learned that all my good works, all my fasting, all my vigilant watchings, all the redemptions I thought I obtained through mass and pardons, 
All of this being done without truth in Christ, who alone saves people from their sins. All these things, he says, I learned to be nothing but a running out of the right way. He says it was much like the garments of fig leaves that Adam and Eve went about in vain, trying to cover themselves. They couldn't obtain quietness and rest until they believed in the promise of God. And that promise was Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Bilney had not read Luther. All Bilney had read was the New Testament. All Martin Luther had read was the New Testament. All Erasmus had read was the New Testament. So Bilney is preaching. They tell him to stop preaching. He keeps preaching. He's preaching the only way to heaven is to repent of our sins and by grace accept Christ as Savior. So he's preaching one day in the pulpit at St. George's. The police come in and drag him right out of the pulpit in the middle of his sermon. He's thrown in jail for a while. He's tried. He's convicted. And at 36 years old, he's burned to death for teaching the Bible. 36. As Bilney was preaching those few years, a number of Martin Luther's works did start to flood secretly into the country of England. Well, not secretly yet, into the country of England. And they were welcomed by many, mostly because 150 years before Bilney, there was a man by the name of John Whitcliffe up at Oxford who was preaching Reformation teachings. They called his followers Lollards. And these Lollards welcomed the opportunity to read the Bible now and to read Luther's works. So England had a receptive audience ready and waiting for the Reformation. But by the time Martin Luther's work started to come into England, Luther had been condemned by the Pope. And all of his books at Oxford, Cambridge, and London were burned. Now, interesting. Burning and banning books only seems to make them more popular. And so it was. Luther's books were smuggled into England now in even greater numbers than they had been before. Spurring a great network of underground Luther groups. And in Cambridge, one group of professors used to meet in a tavern called the White Horse Inn. And of course, the English at the time, they drank their beer. They loved the beer. So they'd be in a tavern. They'd be having their beer. and They'd be discussing Luther and scripture. Don't get any ideas. That's kind of weird. But uh, I don't want to introduce anything new at Bible study. This, this is cultural. Okay. So they're at the White Horse Inn. Uh, the beer is flowing. Luther discussions and scriptural Bible discussions are flowing. And it was going on so much that the people there in England used to call the White Horse Inn and they called it Little Germany. Because Luther's was from Germany. This was all taking place on the east side of England, but over on the rural west side of England in a little village called Gloucester, a brilliant young linguist by the name of William Tyndale was beginning to cause a lot of eruptions. He had been employed as a private tutor for the children of a man named John Walsh. But Tyndale began reading a new translation of the New Testament. I wonder whose translation he was reading. Erasmus. Boy, what a troublemaker. Putting the Bible in people's hands. So Tyndale is reading an accurate translation of the New Testament. And he began discussing it at the dinner table. And John Walsh would often have these dinner parties, invite people. And all Tyndale wanted to talk about was Jesus Christ 
in the scriptures. Everyone around the table was Roman Catholic. Yeah. He would tell folks, the Greek word for the gospel signifies a good and merry, glad, joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and sing. And nobody else talked like that, and so they looked at him very strangely. But Tyndale had come to see that God declared sinners righteous. It was a legal act, a divine declaration. He didn't have to work for it. And it was for him a doctrine that brought him comfort and joy. That he, a failing sinner, was loved by God, clothed by the perfect righteousness of Christ, giving him dazzling confidence. And one Catholic scholar got so exasperated with Tyndale that he blurted out, it would be so much better to be without God's law than without the Pope's. Tyndale looked at him and gently replied, I defy the Pope and I defy all his laws. If God spare my life for many years, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know scripture better than you do. And was no idle threat. He then set out to make it his life's work to translate from the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, not any Latin, but the original Bible languages, which was impossible pretty much to do at the time. He wanted those translated into English for common people to have. He was a man on the run. They ran him out of the country, so he had to flee to Germany where he did his work. He translated the New Testament into English right from the Greek in large pieces of the Old Testament right from the Hebrew. It's different now. Others, like Wycliffe 400 years earlier, they had some English copies of Scripture, but not right from the Hebrew and the Greek. It had been done from the Latin. So it was full of the errors of the Roman Latin Bible. And here's something else. Marvel at God's providence. A machine had been invented not too long ago called the printing press. So they began to print Tyndale's Bible by the thousands and get it into the hands of common people. And the people in England who were illiterate longed so desperately to know what the Bible said that they began to learn to read by the thousands. How to be saved, how to be a Christian now looked completely different. No longer was it a cold and distant sacrament or ritual. But Tyndale and the other reformers were calling people for a change of heart to be born again. They managed to smuggle more than 16,000 copies of scripture back into England. Tyndale, you know, had to flee for his life to Germany. And you think 16,000 copies of the Bible, that's not very much. Well, remember that the total population of England at this time was only two and a half million. So it had a tremendous impact. So finally, in 1535, his enemies caught up with him. And at the age of 42, right near Brussels, Belgium, they tied him to a stake and they set him on fire. But like a lot of these reformers. What did he do as the flames were consuming his body? He began to preach. He began to preach as he was being burned. So they took a chain and they put it around his neck and they strangled him because he wouldn't shut up. Right? 42 years old. 
His last words were, Lord, please open the king of England's eyes. And then he died. Lastly, it's interesting that God answered Tyndale's prayer. Because he brought a man to the throne of England by the name of Henry VIII. Not just a song from the 60s. He was a real person. Henry reigned on the throne of England from 1509 to 1547. He was a deeply religious and devout Catholic. He even wrote a scathing polemic against Martin Luther's writings, and he called it in defense of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. He is not exactly what you would call bright hope for the Reformation in England. But one thing Henry did that really helped the Protestant Reformation was he got married. If you know anything about Henry VIII... He loved the ladies in an immoral, wicked way, but God used it to help the Reformation. Because the king of England became embroiled with the pope regarding his marriage, because he had married a woman named Catherine of Aragon, and she could not give him a son, and that's what he wanted more than anything, an heir to the throne. So he wanted the marriage annulled, and the pope wouldn't do it, so they got in this huge fight. So what does King Henry VIII do? He does what all kings do. He orders his biblical scholars to find a way to get rid of the authority of the Roman church so he could divorce her and marry a gal named Anne Boleyn. Who ends up killing her too, so killing her, so he was quite a guy. Well, his his biblical scholars came back and said, hey, we discovered something. Do you realize that according to scripture that England is not under the pope's rule? And we're going to declare you as the supreme head of the church in England. So there's a complete split with the Roman Catholic Church. He's still Catholic at heart, but he initiates all this anti-Roman Catholic legislation because he's mad at the Pope. And the Reformation in England and Christianity in England blossoms. And he drains the treasuries of the Catholic monasteries. And he commands that every citizen in England should learn to read the Bible. And he made sure that every church had copies of the Bible and crowds flocked to churches to hear the word of God and to learn the scriptures. And the Catholics were shocked and dismayed and angry. And thousands of Englishmen learned to read just so they could read the word of God for themselves. And now ordinary people began to question their priests about where their beliefs came from, because those beliefs were not agreeing with what they were reading in the Bible. So King Henry VIII promotes Protestant Reformation among his people. And there was no going back. He had inadvertently unleashed a power that he couldn't control. And so William Tyndale's prayer at his death was answered. In a certain way. Reformation spreads. A group of people arise upset with the English church. And they were known as Puritans. And these people called Puritans when they were finally being persecuted for their conservative biblical beliefs. They fled to a distant country across the ocean called America. On a ship called. Don't drop them all. The Mayflower. Does that ring a bell? Anyone? Thanksgiving, Plymouth Rock, all that stuff. All of this happening. To bring light to a dark world through the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because of individuals 
just single individuals, different places that were taking stands for truth. People who didn't care about their own lives. They wanted to see the word of God preached and taught as it should be. And if it cost them their lives, they didn't care. So here's some application as we leave today. Do you consider the gospel to be good news? How do you show that you think that the gospel is good news? If it's good news, then you can't keep it to yourself. It's too exciting. It's too important. It's too amazing. And I would say, if it's not good news to you, if you're very silent with the gospel, and remember the gospel is Jesus Christ, then you need to sit and reflect as these men did at places like Romans 1, 16 and 17. And think about what justification is. Think about how God, by his mercy, freely gave you eternal life. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on you like a coat and he clothes you in Christ's righteousness. So that when God looks at you, a sinner, he sees Jesus Christ. My word, that's too good to keep to myself. Secondly, would you be willing to lay down your life for the Bible? Would you be willing to sacrifice your life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to leave home and family and country and comfort and enter a world of danger and harassment because you believe that the Bible is the word of God and you want people to know? Not every person is called. Not every person has the calling to full-time Christian service. But I really believe that particularly... One of the hallmark features of the American church today is I believe there are a great number of people who have a call to ministry who suppress that call or ignore that call or don't want to respond to that call for various reasons, comfort, materialism, fear. Study and read about these reformers and what they were willing to sacrifice. Thousands upon thousands of people died so that we could hold this in our hands. Thirdly, do you appreciate that you have a complete Bible, all 66 books, so easily within your grasp? How do you show that you appreciate what God did and what people did to give us this completed scripture? Do you give it priority? Do you give it ultimate authority? Do you even give it time? As you're reading it, As we read scripture, we should be telling ourselves these are the very words of God. We should also sometimes think about those who have gone before us, who paid the ultimate cost so that we could have this. And that should really affect our attitude toward it. Let's stand together. I've asked Dave Goodwin and Carol to come. We're going to close with a hymn. 746. Hymn number 746. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 3. I know it's a little upbeat, but I think if the gospel is good news, we should have voices full of joy and happiness uh, and singing and praising God uh, for what we have. So, Dave, verses 1, 2, and 3.
give you an opportunity this morning uh, if you have never made a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you thought you were saved, but like Martin Luther, you didn't really understand what it meant to be justified. So if you've never had that understanding that you're a sinner, you're helpless before God, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. You're completely at his mercy. But Christ was the perfect sacrifice. His death on the cross paid your penalty that you owed. You can't earn it. There's nothing you could do. You just have to receive it as a free gift of mercy. If you've never done that, if you've never had that understanding, don't delay. I'm just going to close in prayer. And if you would like to make that decision today to come to Christ, just come up as I pray. It's not going to be a real long time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise your name so much. Your graciousness is unbelievable. Your mercy is inexhaustible. Your patience has no end. You're so patient with us as sinners. And you stoop down to bring of salvation. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, who existed from eternity past, takes on human flesh, human nature, and he steps down here to pay a penalty which we couldn't, that we didn't deserve. So, Father, it should be Jesus all the time, all Jesus all the time. 
Jesus is the power. He's the faith. He's the righteousness. He's the, the, the life. He's everything. He is the gospel. So when we share the gospel, we're sharing good news. And Father, may it truly be good news to us. Sometimes we forget how good it is. And the world should know how good it is because we can't stop talking about it. So help us, Father, to be messengers of good news. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Hope you have a blessed, restful day. Don't forget, if you'd like to help with the food for Vacation Bible Club, barbecue. That's out in the foyer.